Welcome to Grace Bible Fellowship Sermon Archive. Our prayer is that you will be abundantly blessed as you listen to this sermon delivered by Pastor Paul Francisco. Join us as we are pointed to the grace found in Jesus Christ alone, as recorded in God's Holy Word. Last year, I recently started investing in um, the stock market, thinking about retirement, uh, not retirement from pastoring, but retirement in the sense of I've retired from the government and so forth and thinking about, you know, for the future for my, my family. And as I've studied the, the stock graphs, there, there are incredible ups and downs that, that happen. But if you find a good stock, you will always see, even though there's these ups and downs, you'll always see an upward trajectory. And I believe this mirrors the Christian life. But there should always be an upward progress in our faith. Unlike a bad stock, um, as a Christian who has the Spirit of God in them, um, this is impossible. Um, God's Spirit should be growing us in maturity in Christ, should be sanctifying us. We ought to love God's Word. We should pursue holiness. The Christian life is not stagnant. You're either progressing or digressing. And in fact, I would argue if you're digressing, it possibly might be a flag for you to examine your own heart that if you are actually in Christ. Our text today reminds us of our former self. And we are charged by Paul, the apostle, to live as we have been transformed by Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us that if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all things become new. In chapter 3, we come to this glorious consummation of Paul's letter to Titus. He has charged Titus with the special task of appointing godly men as the leaders of the church and to hold fast to the word, teaching sound doctrine. And in chapter 2, he gives Titus and the Cretans a picture of what discipleship should look like. And the charge of pursuing God's assignments for men and women within the church growing in Christ. Paul now gives this charge of godly conduct. And he reminds them of where they came from. And he tells them essentially, act like Christians. So this morning, as we look at the text, I have the title, Sinners Saved for good works. But I want to attempt to show you through this text that we must be ready for good works. I think you'll see in verses 1 and 2 that we can help others in the present day. And my second point would be as we reflect back in our former lives and as Paul draws us into this in the text, in the past we hurt others. So as I shared with you our first point is we can help others in the present. The text tells us, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. If you are in Christ, a new creation 
by regeneration, by the washing of the word, then you were called to a new purpose. We were saved for good works. This is not to be confused with salvation itself, but the gospel that saves also comes with a response. Good works should flow from those who have been saved. It is an overflow of the love and our obedience to God that we pursue righteousness and do good works. We cannot possibly call Jesus Lord and not follow out of obedience. Our good deeds are part of our spiritual act of worship. It is absolutely important to get the order correct here. We are saved through our belief, by grace, faith, our belief, and then we act accordingly. Behavior follows belief. Last week, a dear sister pointed out that I mistakenly said the opposite. Behavior follows belief. Yet in a real sense, belief and behavior are interwoven together like a beautiful tapestry of biblical teaching on this text. We are called to act like Christians. We can have confidence in knowing what God commands is possible. Because what God has done for us and in us through Christ, the text begins with this key phrase. Remind them. Remind them. This flows naturally out of the previous section that we just concluded in chapter 2, verse 11 through 15. Verses 1 and 2 in chapter 3 show the application of the gospel. A believer's life in the world. And Paul provides seven commands in this text that I believe falls into four categories. And so I'll give you these four categories of commands. It says, we should submit obediently. We should submit obediently. Secondly, we are to serve eagerly. We are to serve eagerly. Thirdly, we ought to speak gently. Speak gently. And fourthly, we need to show, show humility. Humility, and that's part of the reason why I asked for us to pray about that this morning. We are to show humility. So I want to kind of break this out in these four categories as we look through the text of this verses one and two. Submission to rulers. It says to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient. This verse here works parallel with Matthew chapter 22, verse 21, Romans 13, 1, and 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13 through 14. And I will read what God's word has to say on these so you know that this is true. In Matthew 22, 21, the text says, they said Caesar's, meaning the disciples were responding to Jesus' question when he was showing them the coin. Who, is it, who does this belong to? And he says, they said Caesar's. Then he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And then Romans chapter 13, verse 1 we see that the text tells us, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is 
no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. In other words, God is the one who establishes authorities. And then we see in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 14, the text tells us, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to pray the, praise those who do good. Christians are not anarchists or rebels. We do not attempt to subvert the government or disobey the government unless it brings us into direct conflict with God's commands. And even then, our disobedience should be passive, not aggressive or violent like storming the Capitol or killing people in the streets. This does not honor the Lord. This is actually disobedient to God's command. This is why during the pandemic, we have, as elders, have attempted to help us follow the government law and guidelines. It is for the greater safety and good of the people. It doesn't mean that we are being bowing down to the government. This submission, in, submission is evidence of submission to and trust in the Lord. We are being submissive out of reverence for Christ. This doesn't mean that if the government told us that we couldn't worship or gather at all, that we would automatically obey, right? Absolutely right, sister. Look at John MacArthur and the example of their disobedience, him and the elders at Grace Community Church, uh, disobedience to the California law, right? The California law is trying to prevent them from actually even gathering together. And they have refused and are receiving fines and fighting in the courts right now. We need godly men and leaders who are willing to stand up for what is right. If that was ever to happen right here in El Paso, whether I'm here alone or whether all of you come, we are called up by a greater command of God not to forsake the gathering. And we would not obey the government if they try to keep us from actually being together in worshiping our Lord. We are com commanded by God not to forsake the gathering. Some during the pandemic have forgotten that. It is actually disobedient, beloved, and sinful to knowingly and willfully forsake the gather gathering. Read it right there in Hebrews chapter 10. This does not mean that if we ever miss a gathering that we are disobedient, but it does mean we should not forsake, right? Meaning we shouldn't intentionally think that it's okay not to be with God's people or have a low view of the church. Brothers, sisters, saints, did you know the church is a gift to us? It's been given to us by the ultimate giver, 
Christ, who laid down his life for his bride, for his people, for his flock, for his children. As my brother John reminded me on Thursday, everyone seems to fear COVID that may kill you. But there is a greater disease with a 100% mortality rate. Sin definitely leads to death. Absolutely, you will die. Even if you're in Christ, we will die physically because of the effects of sin. But if we are in Christ, we do not die in eternal damnation spiritually. And sin leads to death. And this was coming from a dear brother, fellow pastor, who his own father has passed away from COVID. So as Christians, we are called to submit. To submit and be ready. You see that in the text, it says, to be ready for what? Every good work. Every good work. So we're told to be submissive to our rulers, and then we're told to serve eagerly. As I stated before, we are saved for good works. We are God's workmanship. Received for good deeds of righteousness. Sinners saved for good works. So the text tells us to be ready for this. The word every tells us that the command is comprehensive. Galatians 6, 10 says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are the household of faith, meaning the church. Titus chapter 2, as we had last week looked in, verse 14, reminds us that Christ has redeemed us to create us to create a people for himself who are eager for good works, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. If you're looking in your Bibles, it's right there. We look to aid others, assist and help others in any and every opportunity. Listening to the spirit that is prompting us. Obeying the Father's commands. And imitating Christ's model of good works. Some of us here have spent, including myself, a whole career of service. Whether it be in the military, law enforcement, the medical field, as a teacher... Why is it that we have a hard time serving others without payment? Do you like to serve others? How are you serving your family, friends, neighbors, coworkers today? This past Friday, a last-minute thing came up on Thursday evening, and I got a text from Larry Floyd, who is the director of the El Paso Baptist Association, and he said, Brother, we got an extra semi-truck of food. Please come 
pick up food and give it out for your church and for the ministry of others. So I scrambled, called a couple of brothers from the church who met with me Friday morning, and we, I, I, the back of my van, no kidding, 32 boxes of 23 pounds full of food, eight boxes with four gallons of milk each, filled the back of my van. The back of Chris's truck was filled with food, and we were able to deliver a whole truckload of food to the mustard seed. And if you're not aware what the mustard seed is, this is a ministry right here in El Paso that helps feed um, those who are underserved, those who are needy, those who are in need of food. And they serve them both food and then the food of the word of God by sharing the gospel with them. My, my wife went around in her van dropping off and delivering to members of the church, dropping it off to ladies who are ministering to folks in a community. We went and walked to neighbors' houses, handed off food, all these things, because we saw that this was an opportunity for ministry. And, you know, to be able to testify to the goodness of God in our service, we were eager to serve in this way. I, I can't help but think of a dear brother that, and I, he didn't know I was going to say this, but came yesterday to my home. And as I was laboring and preparing for today's message, he came and dropped off, oh boy, it was tasty food, some tasty food from his uh, family's restaurant. And boy, it was amazing. But not, not that it was so amazing that the food was so good, but the fact that he just thought about me and he just said, you know, I, I would like to serve you. What an amazing gift that is for us to do simple things for one another. One of you guys are moving, helping to move. That's a service I'll never forget. That happened when I moved here from a dear brother, and he knows he is, who just showed up with his wife and helped me unload a truck. I mean, there's been many here have given gifts of you know, during, after the birth of a child or uh, the passing of a loved one, what, whatever it means, and just went and brought meals to one another's house. Brothers and sisters, this is God-glorifying stuff. We should look for opportunities to serve one another eagerly. It's especially for the household of God, we were told, right? But then how much more amazing it is when we serve those who don't know Jesus Christ. We serve them with the word of God that has the power of God for salvation. And we are called to serve eagerly, to be ready for every good work that the Lord gives us. And then we are told that I believe in this text says to speak gently. The text says to speak evil no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle. This means we are to slander no one, to avoid fighting. Again, the scope here is comprehensive. We malign or curse no one. Without our words or stirring up strife, we do not wish ill will upon anyone or cause trouble. Instead, we are to be peaceable and gentle, friendly, and considerate of others. 
In our family at home, there's a memory verse that we recite with our children, Philippians 2.14. It tells us to do all things without grumbling or disputing. This means to do things without complaining or fighting. Did you know when we complain, brothers and sisters, that is sin and God hates it? And we're called to do it without grumbling or disputing. Have you ever responded to your wife harshly? Do you lose your cool with your children? You know, brothers and sisters, I'm talking to myself here. Do you ever yell and curse at bad drivers while out on the road? Some of us have road rage, right? Some of us need to seal our lips at that moment. None of us are perfect. We all have weak moments. I get that, myself included. We are prone or tempted to act in a way we ought not to. However, for those of us who call ourselves Christians, we must not be characterized by this type of behavior. This is an area since returning home from combat twice, which I've had to ask Christ time and time again to give me grace. And the Spirit has given me a heart that is easily convicted. I must return and ask for forgiveness. Oh, just last night I was asking my wife for forgiveness for the way I spoke to her yesterday. This is an area, if this is an area in which you struggle, pray. Ask for mercy and grace. He wants you to be dependent upon him. This is why we need Christ. This is the opposite of angry and a quarreling spirit. It is a gentle spirit that reflects Christ. The gentleness and graciousness of Christ, as 2 Corinthians 10.1 tells us. And that gentleness and graciousness of Christ should lead us to what we were praying about earlier. What we heard in scripture read, humility. My brother John is always telling me, just remain humble, brother. Just stay humble. And the text tells us to show perfect courtesy toward all people. We are to be kind, always showing gentleness to all people. This is the exact opposite of slandering and fighting. In fact, the call is to show gentleness or humility. If you were to look back in what we just preached on two weeks ago in the text of Titus chapter 2, verse 9 through 11, it is a summary of this prior text. When we were given six commands, we were told to be productive, to be pleasing in our spirit, to be polite in our speech, to be principled in our service, to be public in our sincerity, to be praiseworthy for our Savior. 
This command of humility is a conscious placing of others above ourselves. This is precisely what Philippians chapter 2 verses 3 through 8 speaks about. And I'll read again what our brother Pastor John was reading earlier. We are told to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This means we are to teach our children to share. We are to be willing to serve rather than be served. Christians give generously to help others. We don't think more highly of ourselves than we ought because we must remember who we are in Christ and where we were brought from. We were on a road of destruction. A place reserved for us in hell had Paul Francisco's name on it. But Jesus Christ graciously submitted to the Father. And he was eager to serve a rebellious people like us. He speaks gently to our hearts. Gently through the Spirit and the Word of God and demonstrated his humility in serving us and his love on the cross in our place. We must remember who we are in Christ. And this is what verse 3 tells us. In the past, we hurt others. The apostle Paul says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, Led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Perhaps this is precisely why Paul makes this next statement. For we ourselves were once. Through the new birth, we are a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17, right? What a difference Jesus has made. Paul knew it was true for him, and he knew it was true for us. This was with an emphatic, if you look at the Greek word here, it says, we, for we. What has Jesus saved us from besides the fire of hell? This can be summed up in one word. It is sin. But sin is a multi-headed dragon that has attacked and subdued us from every conceivable direction. Again, I'll quote from my sermon last week when John MacArthur says these words, man is not simply influenced by sin, but it is completely overpowered by it. 
And none can escape the dominance of his own effort. Sin is a defiling disease that corrupts every person, degrades every individual, disquiets every soul. It steals peace and joy from the heart and replaces them with trouble and pain. Sin is implanted in every human life, and it's a deadly force, brings a universal depravity that no man can cure, end quote. Beloved, if we are to see clearly our need for the new birth, we must deeply know the nature of our own sin. It's not until we see the depths of our sin that we are able to see the depths of God's grace. Paul notes here in the text six sins of our old south. And I think you'll be able to see it here. Sin deceives. Sin disobeys. Sin dictates. Sin detests. Sin desires. And sin destroys. Six things. Sin deceives, disobeys, dictates, detests, desires, and destroys. Sin does all these things in our old self. We see right here the sin of deception. We were once, what? Fools. Foolish. We were senseless, ignorant, and without spiritual understanding. We were deceived. We were led astray, misled, and guided by another in the path of destruction. In other words, we were stupid. Oh, how easy it is that we are deceived. We can even be deceived in our own good deeds, in our social status. We can have what I call the devil's faith. Our religion can harm us in its deception. It doesn't matter if you were brought up in a Christian home or said a prayer when you were a young child or if you were, are a member, if you are a member of Grace Bible Fellowship. It doesn't matter. Do you have saving faith in Jesus Christ today? Consider Nicodemus from the Bible. I'm going to borrow some thoughts here from the theologian Daniel Aiken. He says, Nicodemus was respected, a respected religious leader in the first century. He was both a Pharisee and a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of the nation of Israel. He was devoutly religious, theologically well-educated, and held in the highest esteem by those who knew him. By all, by all standards, he was a good man. However, Remember that night while visiting Jesus? He was shocked to know that he was not ready for the kingdom of God. What was the reasons that Jesus had given? He had never been born again. He had never been born again. Let us not be deceived, saints. We can talk about the Bible we can follow his commands. We can pray lavish prayers and no theological doctrine, yet be deceived in thinking we are okay. 
You see, the disciples had the greatest theological seminary training there was. For three years, they walked and followed Jesus. Yet, do you remember that one disciple named Judas who betrayed him? Only true saving faith in Christ will be forgiven. Do not be deceived this morning. And then the text tells us sin disobeys. We were once disobedient. Our natural bent was to disobey and seek our own way. I got this, God. We like to think that we are the captains of our own ship, right? We were disobedient to God. Disobedient to authorities, disobedient to parents, disobedient to everyone and everything. We were self-centered, self-deceived. Satan deceived rebels against God. The words no come out of their mouth so easily. We never had to teach our children how to sin, right? No! In our old South, we were like children throwing tantrums when we didn't get what we wanted. You see, sin corrupts our hearts. And we can still see traces of our old South in the battle today. The quick word to your wife. Disrespect towards your husband. Anger towards your children disobeying children, your parents' authority, talking about your boss behind their back. And the list goes on and on and on. But yet we are called as children of God to obey. Obey. Thirdly, so sin deceives Sin disobeys, and thirdly, sin dictates. We were once, the text tells us, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. Professing to be liberated and free, we were in actuality in bondage and slavery to cruel and to never satisfied taskmaster. Lust and pleasure controlled us, and we flirted with both beauties only to discover no, no matter how much we gave them, they were never satisfied. It was never enough. What fools we truly were, giving ourselves over to two mistresses who promised so much but gave us so little of value to our empty souls. Charles Spurgeon once wrote, Do not let me talk about these things this morning while you listen to me without feeling I want you to be turning over the pages of your life and joining with Paul and the rest of us in our confession of former pleasure and evil. But we who are in Christ have been given a way of escape. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that has not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to what? Endure it. Fourthly, sin detests. Sin detests. We were once slaves in malice. D 
Do you see that in the text? We are slaves in malice. We were living in this manner. We live with an evil attitude of mind, which manifests itself in ill will and desire to injure. This describes someone with a vicious character who desires to bring good to nobody. This is the same as committing murder in your heart towards someone. You're wishing the death and demise of another human being, someone who has been created in the Imago Dale, the image and likeness of God. It's as if you're wishing someone to fall in utter darkness. And in your judgment, you say, they're not worthy of salvation. What a sad thing it is that we don't share the gospel. Or have hate in our heart. That we would rather see God send someone to hell. Rather than receive his grace of salvation. Like so many during the war on terror who wish to see all Muslims perish, we see them as the enemy rather than what God sees is the mission field. Let this not be said of us, beloved. We are to be a people of the promise who give the message of hope to the captive, helping to see others freed from their bondage of sin. We need to be about gospel proclamation and living out gospel confirmation in our lives, testifying to the hope that lies within us. And then we see in the text, sin desires. We were once slaves in envy. We lived in envy. This is an unquenchable desire to possess what we do not have. It guarantees its own frustration and disappointment. The envious person cannot be satisfied with what he has and will always crave more. Sexual sin is the perfect illustration of this. We are being bombarded with all kinds of sexual immorality today. There is no other sin of the flesh that invades us so deeply, that leaves us so empty, so scarred, and dealing with the consequences of sin on earth with such a deep wound. We wonder why millions of babies are being killed every year. Look at the pornography industry. According to one online statistic, on porn, many studies have been conducted on online pornography use. They have revealed some horrifying facts about porn use. 25% of search engines requests are related to sex. 35% of the downloads from the internet are pornographic. 40 million Americans say they regularly visit porn sites. 70% of men age 18 through 24 visit a porn site at least once per month. The largest consumer group of online porn is men between ages 35 and 49. Women, one-third of all internet porn users are women. Sunday is the most popular day of the week for viewing porn. Thanksgiving is the most popular day of the year for viewing porn. This should be shocking to us, appalling. But just as sin desires, it also destroys. You know, sin destroys. We were once 
the text says, hated by others and hating one another. Sin is a destroyer of all things. It leads us to hate. Apart from the grace of God saving us from ourselves, we are capable of all kinds of evil. These mass shootings, just like what happened here, right here in our own city, are just an example of what we are capable of in our own sin. More and more, we hear about the lack of regard for life. Families killing other family members. In our old self, we were haters of men and of God. Hateful was our nature and attitude. A natural outgrowth out of envy. Detesting was our character in action. In contrast to living a life of love that characterizes disciples of Jesus, we lived a life of hate that gave evidence to our master. We, we were disciples of the devil. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 tells us, just like our text today about our former selves, we were spiritually dead. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you were once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were once by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Beloved, we can't expect dead people to act as if they are alive. Why do we think unsaved people should act like a Christian? Likewise, we who call ourselves Christians should walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Romans 12.1, right? It tells us to offer ourselves fully unto the lordship of Jesus Christ, which is our spiritual act of worship. I appeal to you. Therefore, I urge you, I'm pleading with you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as holy and living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship. We are called to live our life holy and separate from this world. We are to be pleasing to God in full devotion to Christ. When we live in pursuit of holiness, sacrificially giving of ourselves and love towards others, this is a spiritual act of worship. The word could actually be translated in the King James Version, it is translated as reasonable service. Think about that for a moment. If we were to go around and ask, go knocking on doors throughout our neighbors in our neighborhoods, and we ask the question, many claim to believe in God, even to be Christian. But they live like practical atheists. You know, an atheist professes and lives according to their profession. They don't believe in God. They live like that. And then it's only reasonable we live according to the calling we have been given. Saints... If others were asked about your life, what would they say? Would we be reminded of our former self? 
Or would they speak about us in such a way that it reflects the Spirit of God in us? All these descriptions given in this text are a picture of who we once were. But not who we are now if we are in Christ. The gospel has changed everything. We are now a new creation. We are to be ever ready. Sinners saved for good works. This past Thursday, I, with my wife, attended John's family um, at the memorial of his father. And as I listened to his brother and John and his sister, to everyone testify about Ignacio's life, I couldn't help but think about this. I mean, he, according to John's profession, was a pretty sinful man in his young former life. <laughs> they were laughing about how he liked to start fires and watch it burn, all right, literally. And, but yet, God, in his mercy, radically changed his life to where his first family didn't even recognize him at first. He was totally different. His life was, by their testimony, pleasing to God. He loved his family. He adopted a daughter. He was living a different life. Christians, may we all have a memorial service like this where others can testify to the hope within us. We can recount our lives as someone who has been transformed by the gospel. Praise be to God that Christ, rich in his mercy, came down from the heavenly throne, lived the life that we couldn't, and then nailed his love on the cross for a disobedient people like you and me. And then victory, then victory through his triumphant victory over death and sin rose from the grave, purchased for us the rewards of eternal life and invites you today. Let today be the day. Do not harden your hearts. Christ is calling. Knock, and you will find. He will open the door. Come, rest in him. Give him the only thing you can, your sin. Let him take it upon you, upon himself. And live, live life for the first time or if you're walking in Christ now live life abundantly in peace and joy knowing that he has given for you the rewards of eternal life and if you're a Christian who has received this we are called to be ready for good works we can help others today in the present and if we need to be reminded of our past how we hurt others, let it be so, so that we live for the glory of God.
Christian, grace is unmerited and you did not earn it. It is a gift from God, but you were created for his workmanship. Look to Christ and seek his grace. Seek his grace to obey in the lordship of Jesus Christ. Live out a gospel-worthy life. Live in this way. Friends, maybe you're visiting to here today. Maybe you've been here many, many times, but this is the first time you heard the reality of who you were or are currently are in Christ or not in Christ. Maybe this seems like foolishness to you because you have never experienced the grace of God in this way. You don't have a joyful hope as you're nearing the end of your life. The fruit of God's redeeming love is repentance and belief. There is a true advocate before God who is here to set the captives free. The freedom or gains you seek will pass away. But the freedom from your sin is what he can do for you. Eternal freedom Freedom from your restless soul to know love and peace. Turn to Christ and believe. Taste and see that he is good. Ask God to experience this grace today so that you might have the blessed hope of knowing glory is to come. And as I close our time in Ephesians 2, 8 and 10, I will read these words. For by the grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Praise the Lord that His Word is sufficient for our every need. Join us next time as we continue our study of God's infallible Word. We would also love to have you join us in person at Grace Bible Fellowship. We meet together each Sunday from 9 a.m. to 9.50 a.m. for Connection Sunday School and from 10 a.m. to 11.30 a.m. for our worship service. We're located at 1385 Northwestern Drive on the west side of El Paso, along with our hosting sister church, Mission de Gracia. If you have any questions, you can dial 915-308-1208 or visit our website at www.gracebibleelpaso.org. We would love to see you this Sunday as GBF gathers to proclaim Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ. Thank you.